I'd like to invite you to turn with me in God's Word this evening to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read verses 35 through 49 under the heading of our future inheritance from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 through 49 and then we'll turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 22. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for Star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is imperishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let's turn now also in our Heidelberg Catechism, which can be found in the Forms and Prayers book in front of you on page 223. Page 223, beginning in Lord's Day 22. Question 57, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Now we'll flip the page to question 58. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. 
This is our confession. Blessed congregation, we come this evening to the final two articles of our study of the Apostles' Creed. Beginning in Lord's Day 7, and we've progressed all the way through to Lord's Day 22, the subject of our study has been the Apostles' Creed. And I want you to notice this evening that the Apostles' Creed says that the Christian life ends in heaven. The Christian life ends in heaven. The whole catechism is under the theme of comfort. But you may be interested to know that the word comfort only appears actually five times in the Heidelberg Catechism. Did you know that? It appears once, obviously, in Lord's Day 1. What is your only comfort in life and death? Then it appears in question 52 about the return of Christ. It appears in question 53 about the Holy Spirit, for His very name means comforter. But then, here in Lord's Day 22, we see that word appear twice. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? And how does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? And I don't think this evening that it's by accident that the instructor mentions comfort twice. Because comfort presupposes sorrow. Consider that the times when we feel our greatest need for comfort is in our times of sorrow. And there is no time more sorrowful in our lives than when we consider the subject of death. Death is not explicitly mentioned here in Lord's Day 22. But it's clearly implied. The reason comfort is so emphasized here is because we need comfort, yes, in life. But the Christian also needs comfort in death. We need a comfort, as we just sang, from my Jesus I love thee, which extends beyond this life. And even to our deathbed, and yes, even to the grave. And every single one of us in this room has been touched by death, haven't we? We drive by a cemetery and we see the tombstones. We're reminded of death. We flip through the newspaper and we see the obituary column. There is death. Even here in this church, did we not experience three deaths in two weeks? Even two on one day. Barely have the tears dried in one house before a new fountain of grief springs up in another. This is why the Catechism emphasizes comfort here. Because there is true comfort in Christ. Comfort that can even help us in the saddest moments of our lives. Well wishes, 
Cards and meals are good things. And we should do them. But what really gives us comfort when we're standing beside the bed of a loved one who's about to pass away, what really gives us comfort when we stand beside the open mouth of the grave, committing someone's body to the earth, is when even in our sorrow, we whisper under our breaths, I believe in the resurrection of the body. I believe in life everlasting. This is the blessed comfort of all God's people. Because even in death, our great enemy, there is glory prepared for us in Christ. Death is the final enemy. Satan will do all he can to try to persuade us from the narrow way. But Lord's Day 22 reminds us that the future belongs to God. He is still the King of kings. He is still the Lord of lords. And He has promised us that He will come again. He has promised us that He will come again riding on the clouds of glory. That He will raise our bodies up from the dust and He will bring His people, body and soul, into everlasting life. The comfort, my dear friends, does not end in death. The comfort of belonging to Jesus Christ only reaches its climax. This is our future inheritance. As Joel Beakey put it, to have a perfect soul and a perfect body. To be brought to a perfect place. To perfectly worship the perfect triune God and to relish our perfect Savior forever and ever. Heaven, my dear friends, will be perfection. This is our future. I want to show you this just with two, from two points from 1 Corinthians 15 and Lord's Day 22. We, let's look at our resurrected bodies and life everlasting. Our resurrected bodies and life everlasting. So we come then this evening to 1 Corinthians 15 where we see that the Apostle Paul is immediately engaged in some debate, isn't he? Verse 35, he says, but someone will ask, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? If you have your Bibles open, flip back just ten chapters to first Corinthians fifth or excuse me, first Corinthians verse chapter five, verse nine, where we see the apostle Paul says he's already been in contact with this church. He says in verse nine, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people. What Paul is saying here, what we deduce from this verse, is that the Apostle Paul has actually already been in contact, in letter form, with the Corinthian church. And he knew the challenges that they had with the Christian faith. He was aware of the issues they had. And so in verse 35 of verse chapter 15, we see that he's aware that people are struggling 
with the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Don't forget also that the Apostle Paul was the founding pastor of this church. We think that he would have lived and pastored in Corinth for about a year and a half. He knew the culture. He knew the philosophy of the day. He knew the prevailing notions. And he knew that the Greek philosophers taught that the immortality of the soul was true, but not the immortality of the body. They affirmed the immortality of the soul, but not the immortality of the body. Luke records in the book of Acts Paul's planting of the church in Corinth in Acts 18. But just prior before Paul planted in Corinth, we're told that the Apostle Paul was in Athens. And in verse 31, we're told that he is giving a lecture about the truths of Jesus Christ, how Paul or how Jesus Christ has been taught from the Bible from the beginning of the age, and the philosophers and the various people are listening to him. And we read in Acts 17, verse 31. that because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man who He has appointed, speaking of Christ here, and of this He has given assurance to all by the raising of Him from the dead. And what's the reaction of the people of that day? We read in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked Him. They mocked Him. The Epicureans and the Stoics at the end of His address mock Him because Paul is teaching that not only is the soul immortal and will last into the life of come, to come, but also the body has been redeemed by God and the flesh is going to go into the age to come. You see, it may be foreign to us today But the prevailing notion at the time was that the flesh was evil and the soul was good. The flesh needed sleep and food and clothing and struggles. It had struggles in the flesh. And so the the body was in a sense seen, if you will, as a prison. Something we needed to get out of. And in death, we escaped from the flesh, was the idea. Now it's true that in death, the soul and the body are separated. But the Apostle Paul will teach us here that they will not be separated forever. Our catechism likewise says, the soul of the believer is taken immediately to Christ its head after death. That when the child of God closes their eyes for the final time, when He dies, they will reopen in glory. Even though the soul and the body at death are separated, and if you've ever been by someone's bedside as they passed away, 
their souls, we see, leave their body. But we're told in the Bible that their souls are immediately taken to Christ and they'll exist in His presence until the return of Jesus. Jesus actually tells us this in the Gospel of Luke. He gives an example of a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. We're told in Luke chapter 16 where there's a rich man who's clothed in this glory and there's this poor man um, who is righteous. His name is Lazarus. And we're told in chapter 16, verse 23, that when, he's die, that when he dies, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 22, that when the poor man dies, he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The picture we're given that is, is that as soon as he passes away, the angels come and bear him up and carry his soul to the presence of God. Almighty. Some will say, well, this is just a parable. And it's true, we ought not to take too many implications from parables. But doesn't Jesus likewise in just a few short chapters later say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. What the catechism is doing here is it's recognizing that there is a separation. There is a separation when we die between the two things that make us human. Our bodies and our souls are separated. When we commit someone to the earth and we lay their flesh in the ground, it's just their body. Their souls are not there with them in the dirt. There is a separation, but the catechism is strongly emphasizing the separation is not between Christ and His children. The separation is not between Christ and His church, but between the body and the soul. And that after death, the soul goes to a place of blessedness which the Scriptures don't speak much of. The soul goes to where Jesus is while the body is committed to the grave. But the hope that we've talked about already this evening is that the separation won't last forever. But that Christ has redeemed us in soul, yes. But He has also redeemed us in the flesh. This is why the Apostle Paul says in verse 36 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The person who rejects the resurrection of the body is actually, he says, verse 26, a foolish person. A foolish person is somebody who has the facts in front of them and still makes the wrong decision. We're fools if we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. What a profound statement in the world in which we live. It is foolish not to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, look at nature. If God can raise natural things from the dead, why can't He raise us from the dead? 
he mentions three examples here this evening I want us to notice. He mentions seeds, agriculture. He mentions living animals. And he mentions heavenly bodies. Look first at this emphasis he gives in verse 36 to 38. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. The first example is from agriculture. Now, I'm going to quickly admit to you that I am not a farmer. Surprise, surprise. But what I've been told is that when you take a seed and it's placed within fertile soil, it's given a sufficient amount of moisture and warm temperatures, the seed does what's called, and I'll ask some farmers after if this is correct, it germinates. And what we mean by germinates is that it begins to disintegrate. The seed is dyed. But the dying of the seed and the germinating of the seed gives fertile ground for new life to spring up out of it. Paul's point is, a farmer can plant a seed. Maybe another farmer waters the seed. But who causes it to grow? Elsewhere, Paul will speak of the spiritual life and he'll say, Paul planted Apollos waters, but God is the one who gives the increase. And if God is able to bring life out of a seed, can He not also bring life out of a human body? His point is, God can bring life even out of death. And Paul goes on and says that what springs up out of that death is even more beautiful than what was planted. And what you sow, he goes on, is not the body that is to be, but it's a bare kernel, perhaps of some wheat or of some grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen. That when we plant a seed into the ground, we don't expect more seeds to come out of it. We actually expect something more beautiful, something more glorious that will bear more seeds for more beauty and more glory. For example, young boys and girls here this evening, think about a little acorn that grows up into a beautiful maple tree. You know why I chose a maple tree. That it sprouts up And it becomes a beautiful, strong tree with big limbs and beautiful leaves. Paul says it's the same thing with believers. That we grow up and we become something that's more beautiful after we sprout. More beautiful after the resurrection. He's answering the question in verse 35. With what kind of body do they come? They come with a glorified, beautiful body. Paul says, just like it is with seeds, so it is with believers. The second example, he mentions living creatures. 
That God gives it a body as He has chosen to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Here He moves from agriculture and begins to talk about the animal kingdom. And interestingly enough, if you flip back to Genesis 1, which you don't need to do this morning, notice that Paul is going in the reverse order of creation. Remember that it was in day 6 man was created. It was in day 5 the birds and the fish were created. In day 4, God hung the lights in the sky. There's incredible diversity in this world. There's so many plants, you couldn't know them all. Or know what becomes what. We can't know how many animals there are. We can't know all the fishes of the sea and all of the insects. But he says, man is the crown of them all. Boys and girls, God's best creation, His favorite part of the world is you. He created everything. And He crowned His creation with man. Is He not able then to also give us glorified bodies? And finally, He looks at the stars. Verse 40, he says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differ from star in glory. If God is able to crown His creation, the created world in which we live with glory, can He not also crown our physical bodies with glory? So it is, He says, with the resurrection of the dead. If God can bring life out of death, if He can create this whole world and we be the crown of His creation, if He can create the sun and the stars and they have this beauty and glory to them, can He not also glorify us in Christ? And He will do it at the resurrection of the dead. That our flesh, our very own bodies, which we lived on in this earth, the Scriptures say, will rise. Job, thousands of years before Christ ever walked on earth, prophesied of the resurrection of the dead when He said, for I know that My Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon this earth, and after My skin has been thus destroyed, yet in My flesh I will see God. Job will rise. And he will see his Redeemer. Job will stand upon the earth. And a bit of a morbid thought is how much of Job is left? No dust 
We came, from dust we came, and to dust we return. How can this be? That God can raise people who are lost at sea, who are burned to ashes, who become but as dust. I can't answer that question. And neither can the catechism. Because look what it says. It's simple. It is our explanation of why we believe what we believe. Because we will be raised by the power of Christ. We believe in the resurrection of the body because Christ is powerful. And He promised He would do it. And our resurrected body, it will be perfect. Look what Paul says. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. We come out of this come into this world sinful, we go out of this world sinful, but we are raised in perfection. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. That when we're born, we're born in the image of Adam, the image of God, lost in the fall. But we are raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Handicaps, pain, and sufferings will be removed in the resurrection of the body. There will be no more wheelchairs. No more crutches. Or casts. Or limps. In heaven, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. It is committed to the earth and the flesh, but we will be raised to be like Christ. We will be made, as the Catechism says, like Christ's glorious body. Congregation, death is not the end. There is comfort for us even in our passing that one day we know that we will hear the trumpet sound and in the twinkling of an eye the dead in Christ shall be raised and the soul and the body will be reunited to exist in heaven with Christ forever. One note that needs to be mentioned here before we look at question 58 of our catechism. Is that even though it's not mentioned, it's making a very important claim that there is no room in our thoughts for purgatory. There is no room in our comfort for an extra place of purging where we get topped off before we go into the presence of God. We get cleaned up before we can meet Jesus. No, the catechism is emphasizing that our whole hope, our whole comfort, is that Jesus has paid the price and redeemed us not only in soul, but also in body. And that as the Puritan said, our death day is but our wedding day. When our eyes close the final time, they shall awaken 
in the presence of our bridegroom to be with him forever. That is the Christian hope. So if we return then to the Apostle's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, this is our second point. We see life everlasting. The Apostle Paul begins by stating a very simple truth, one of which we should all be able to grasp, that we have a physical body. We all have a physical body. But then the Apostle Paul takes it one step further and says that we also have what he calls a spiritual body. Look with me at the Scriptures. It says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now what does that mean? Now before you get me in trouble, let me clarify. The Apostle Paul is not saying that we have two persons. Two compositions. But he's talking about our essential characteristics that we have here on earth. That on earth, we are both earthly and we are also spiritual. And that we exist on earth in this tension between living in heaven and living on earth. There is a tension between the physical and the spiritual nature. But he goes on and helps clarify this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being And the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. He's talking about where do you get these two bodies? You get your flesh from Adam. All human beings have descended from Adam and Eve. That's the physical body. It's marred with corruption and dishonor and weakness and because of sins... But he says the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, became a life-giving Spirit. That He, in His coming, in His redeeming, in His taking of our sins, which we looked at this morning, He makes us fit to be temples of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. That the body has become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Whom you glorify God in. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Paul says, so glorify God with your body. That is, when God created Adam, He became a living living being. And when Christ entered the world in human form, He becomes the one through whom God gives us a second life. Who gives us Eternal life. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the last Adam became a life-giving spirit, he's referring to Christ's coming. He's referring to Christ dying. He's referring to Christ's resurrection from the grave. And that He gives us the spirit of life even while we live in the physical world. And have a body of flesh. But notice again 
that the final articles of the Apostles' Creed, notice where it ends. It doesn't end here. It ends in heaven. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life, I will have a perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined. A blessedness to praise God eternally. It doesn't say you may have a perfect blessedness or you might have a perfect blessedness, but you will have a perfect blessedness. Because you have been given the Spirit as a seal of your inheritance. In fact, the old translation of this portion of the Catechism said, maybe some of you remember it, even before the Psalter hymnal, it said, I shall inherit perfect salvation. And that really captures the truth of it. Because what do you need to do to earn an inheritance? An inheritance is a gift. It's free. Eternal life is guaranteed of grace. And it's given in grace. It's given as a gift which He seals unto us by His Spirit. So Christ came that we might experience salvation now, but there is a perfect blessedness to come for all of eternity. The Catechism rightly uses the word perfect because heaven will be perfect. Do you understand what perfect means? None of us do. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor can the heart of man imagine the blessedness that will be ours in the age to come. It will be perfect. Even though we don't understand it, we must trust in our articles of faith that God will not disappoint us. It's an article of our faith that we will have everlasting life. So we must believe this evening with longing and hope there is something perfect for us to come. Now, we can only imagine what heaven will be like. And sometimes those get a little overboard. But the Scriptures do give us many analogies. The Scriptures speak of life everlasting as a reward, an inheritance, a blessing, a rule, feasting, security, no pain, no mourning, no disappointment, no struggle, no fear. It's also called a lush garden, a wall of precious stones, a beautiful city, a lasting foundation, a street of gold, a sea of crystal, a lasting foundation. It's called a wedding celebration, a tree of life, living water, manna from heaven, unending life, unceasing worship before the throne, and unto the Lamb. 
Life everlasting is called power, beauty, delight, truth, and sweetness rolled into one experience that we get to enjoy forever. Eternal life in God's presence is described as everything beautiful, everything good, everything holy, forever and ever and ever. And it will be such a weight of glory that no happiness on earth is said to compare with it. It is such a weight of glory that in a moment all of our earthly troubles will be forgotten. And every pain that we endured in this life will seem inconsequential to the joy that we have right then. In a word, Paul says we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. And in heaven, we will be made like Christ. For we will see him as he is, and we will be made perfect as he is. What do we do then where it says in question 58, I already now experience. Look around. There is nothing perfect about the world in which we live, is there? There is nothing blessed on earth. There is still famine and war and cancer and poverty and crime and sin. No, the catechism says, this is not an earthly experience that we cling to. Yet. But it's something we experience in our hearts. That we can already, even at this moment, experience the perfect blessedness of His love, His grace, His mercy, His truth, His daily presence and steadfast love in our hearts. It's a down payment. It's a pledge of the inheritance that He has prepared for you. Do you know this blessedness? Is it yours even here, right now, in this moment? The Catechism and the Apostle Paul agree that there is comfort that can be given to us right now in our hearts. doesn't mean that we won't have trials in this life. But God will walk through those trials with us and lead us to glory in heaven. This is our future inheritance in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give You thanks for the many wonderful pictures that You give us of the glory that will be ours in Christ Jesus the Lord for all of eternity. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can even fathom the depths of Your love for us. Father, we pray that we would experience this perfect blessedness even now in our hearts through Your love in Jesus Christ. We thank You for the heavenly man who looked upon us in our lowliest state and loved us so to come and to give us His life-giving Spirit as the pledge of our inheritance for all of eternity. Father, work these things in our hearts to believe them By Your grace we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen.